Hey everyone, welcome again to Disciple Makers. My name is Clint Watkins. I'm also on staff with Disciple Makers, and uh, I'll be kicking off our series in the book of Mark. So if you have your handouts handy, we're going to be reading there uh, from there in just a second. Um, I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago uh, a, um, an article that caused a little bit of an uproar in the talk show host and political scene. It was an article about the color of Santa's skin. And the title of it was, Santa Shouldn't Be a White Man Anymore. And there was a particular news anchor, I won't mention names, but she was uh, very upset by this uh, assertion about Santa not being a white man. And she said, and I quote, Santa just is white. And then she threw in this uh, kind of assumption that she stated as an absolute fact. She said, so Santa just is white. Jesus was a white man too. Uh, Don't worry, we're not getting super political tonight. I know, don't worry. But let me just throw on my two cents here. So she said, Jesus was a white man too. Um, Okay, we don't actually know the color of Jesus' skin. Not to, I don't want to, you know, break any news to you, but he didn't have Snapchat or Instagram. I know. Yeah. Wouldn't you like to be on his friends list? Didn't have that. Paparazzi never quite got a good picture of him. So we don't actually know. I mean, she stated as a fact, but we don't know the color of Jesus' skin. But we do have enough information that we can make some educated guesses, right? So what do we know about Jesus? He was a Middle Eastern man, Middle Eastern Jew, who lived in Israel. So probably didn't have white skin, right? We can at least guess that he had like olive skin, a little bit on the darker side, you know? Um, Also, (laughs) St. Nicholas was from Turkey. (laughs) He was also Middle Eastern. (laughs) So uh, don't worry, I'm not here to talk about the color of Santa's skin or his existence or the color of Jesus' skin, but I do want to point out what happened in that little, that short little clip. I mean, it's easy to overlook in that little, you know, politically tense moment We, or what she was doing there, she had made an assumption about Jesus and then used that assumption to further her own agenda. And that assumption was obviously not based in fact, but based on her perspective. But then she used that to push and shape her viewpoint and her perspective. And it is really easy to poke fun at news anchors and, you know, point the finger. But the reality is, we have a tendency to do the same exact thing when it comes to Jesus. That we can very easily make assumptions that aren't actually based in the scriptures and then use those assumptions to further our agenda and you know, shape, the way, shape our lives in the way that we want to shape our lives. And the, the reason that we're here as disciple makers and what we're going to be doing this semester is to, to confront that tendency that we all have to push away these assumptions that we make and to look at Jesus for who he actually is. And that's the whole point of the book of Mark. Mark really portrays Jesus in all his beauty and all his awe and amazing character, all the things that he's done. And he challenges to realize he may not be who you think. Christians and non-Christians alike, we are, uh, we tend to make assumptions, but what we want to do here is look at Jesus and get a clear perspective on who Jesus is. And rather than use, uh, pick and choose and shape uh, our own agenda based on that, we want to shape our lives around his agenda and his character. 
So I want to invite you tonight to take the first step into the book of Mark and to, to challenge maybe the assumptions that we've made and to get a clear look at Jesus Christ. Because if he is who he says he is, and if he is who Mark says he is, then that's good news for everyone, and that changes everything. So let me pray, and we're going to read the passage, and then we're going to talk about it. Father, thank you for bringing everyone out tonight. Uh, help us to check our assumptions at the door and to take a clear look at Jesus and help us to be shaped by who he is. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 1, we're going to read the first 18 verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now pay attention to John's fashion. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Who had that for dinner tonight? And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. All right, so I want to look at three things that we see here in this passage. Mark shows us the ache of our hearts. He points us to the arrival of the king and then tells us how to answer his call. So let's first look at the ache of our hearts. Did you notice the epic beginning of Mark's gospel? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, there should be like epic Star Wars music playing in the background. The credits rolling up the screen, right? I mean, it's like this big, this big deal. And if you look at verse 2, it gets even bigger. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, now think about that. So Isaiah was written more than 700 years before Jesus was born. That's kind of odd. He's talking about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then he quotes a book that was written almost a thousand years before him. That'd be like, if you asked me my life story, and I was like, well, let me tell you something that Chris, Christopher Columbus wrote. You'd be like, what in the world does that have anything to do with your life? But that's kind of like the time frame, right? So, uh, so Mark, or Mark is quoting something 700 years old because there's this promise and this prophecy of something that's about to happen, something that God has promised hundreds of years ago is finally happening. You see the anticipation that he's building? And notice what he says in verse two and three. He says, I send my messenger before your face 
who will prepare your way. And then in verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. And so, so uh, Mark is saying that hundreds of years ago, Isaiah said there was going to be a messenger who comes to prepare the way for God's arrival. And that's what you see in verses 4 through 8. You see that second paragraph there. People are flocking to John the Baptist. I mean, look at verse 5. All of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem are going out to him. Now think about it. This guy, verse 6, clothed with camel's hair, wearing a leather belt. Look at what he's eating. Locusts and wild honey. Why would people be flocking to this guy with this really weird diet and fashion? I mean, for us, it does sound weird. Like, you might flock to that guy to take pictures and, you know, maybe poke fun or see what his deal is. But for first century Jewish people, this was a fulfillment of what Isaiah was writing. This would have been um, uh, telling them the prophet has come, the messenger is here. And so they're, they're going to him, they're flocking to him because they've been waiting for this promise for so long. You see underneath that there is this aching underneath. They've been aching to see God do something and show up. And here's the thing. We have a lot of differences with uh, Jewish people from the first century. A lot of differences, right? But we all have this in common. Our hearts ache in the same way that their hearts did. We long for change. We, we have this, this inner longing underneath that drives everything that we do. And I guarantee you, it is already driving much of what you've done this first week of classes. I mean, think about it. We long for purpose. I mean, we, we want to have significance. We ask questions like, will I be remembered? Is there going to be meaning to my life? It's probably what drove you to pick a lot of your majors. Because you want to make a difference in this world. We also long for intimacy. I mean, just think about how much relational longing there is in our lives, whether it's for friendship, companionship, or romance. That's why, you know, you first years, when you come to campus, it's super, super awkward, but then also kind of exciting at the same time. But then there's this uncertainty, like, am I going to be accepted here? Am I going to belong? Another thing I think that we really long for is restoration. I mean, the pain that we experience, the brokenness of the world around us. We long for God to do something and fix what's been broken. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, just a few longings that I've noticed in a couple college students this, this week at, our, at some of our other campuses. I talked to a guy at Thaddeus Stevens and I asked him how his first week of classes went. And he's like, not so good. I was like, why? And he's like, I don't know if I chose the right major. That's sort of uncertainty. He's, he's longing for purpose and wants to know that he made the right decision. We also heard of a, a student who uh, lost her father this week. And her heart is aching in pain. We long for restoration. Our hearts ache. And so I wanna, what I want to encourage you and what I think Mark is pointing us to is not to ignore that aching underneath. You know, when the busyness of the semester starts and and classes really get into full swing and you're involved in your clubs and your teams and all that, it's really easy to kind of ignore and forget that aching. Or it's easy to kind of explain it away. But let me tell you, this aching, this longing that you have, it's not like an evolutionary byproduct. That's not a random thing that's occurring in your soul. You ache because you were made for something and someone greater. 
you ache because it's supposed to point you somewhere else. And so don't ignore that aching underneath. And don't let the noise of the semester make you forget why you ache. So Mark shows us this, this longing and this aching. And if you see, even John the Baptist, he points us to where that, that should drive us. So look at verse 7. He says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. And so that's the second point. This aching drives us to see and to wait for the arrival of the king. And I want to point out two things, and this, this really starts to capture the theme of Mark's gospel. Two things that we learn about Jesus with his arrival. We see his supremacy, and we see his suffering. So let's first look at his supremacy. Do you notice all of the, the claims about Jesus? It's, it's easy to miss, but look at verse 1. The first one is, is a title that all the New Testament writers give to him. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. It means chosen one, anointed, Messiah. And so Mark is first, I mean, the first few words pointing that Jesus has a supreme position, that he has been chosen by God for something incredibly important and specific. But we also see that he has a supreme identity. Again, in verse 1, you see what he's called? He's the son of God. God in the flesh. He's divine. But it's not just like a, a passing statement. Do you see how emphatic this becomes in verse 11? A voice, or start of verse 10. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Now, did the heavens tear open when you showed up on campus for the first time? <laughs> Mike Duick has come to campus. <laughs> right? That, that doesn't happen. That's pretty abnormal. But the, the sonship of Jesus, him being the son of God, the father needs to make it clear who he is because he is the supreme identity of God in the flesh, the son of God. And then in that statement, we also see that Jesus is coming with a supreme love. Because look again at that statement in verse 11. Don't you long to hear something like this? You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And what's interesting in this passage, you see the triune God operating together. You see the spirit, you see God the father, you see God the son. And I know like, that's a mind-blowing reality to try to wrap our minds around. But, but the point is this, that God is a perfect community of complete and secure love. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, and I think this is one of the ways that we subtly get Jesus wrong. We think that Jesus is showing up because he's needy. Like he's just so desperate for your love. He needs you. I mean, have you ever been in a, a relationship like that or maybe been tempted, found yourself? I mean, we're all needy, right? But there's kind of the extreme codependent type of relationship. And the, the, the trouble with that is needy people take and take and take. Yeah, I remember when I was in third grade, right? Elementary school romance, <laughs> Valentine's Day. I get a card from Casey West, and I will never forget what she wrote. She quoted Backstreet Boys. Oh. <laughs> You are my fire, my one desire. <laughs> I was like, dude, this girl's desperate. <laughs> it is a good song. But for a nine-year-old romance, that's a little mature, right? 
Needless to say, we did not end up dating. Uh, but you know that kind of like that, ooh, that hold up with, with needy desperation? Listen, Jesus is not needy and desperate. He's overflowing out of a complete and secure and supreme love. And that means he's not going to take, take, take. That means he has love to give and to give and to give. That's how Jesus shows up. And the last thing about his supremacy is you see his authority, his supreme authority. Look at what he says when he shows up on the scene in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now think about what he's saying there. He's saying, with my arrival, the, king, the kingdom is here. He's saying he's the king. And he's, he's uh, making orders because he can. He has supreme authority. So that's what we see here as Jesus shows up, supremacy. And here's the, here's the point to, to recognize. Jesus is not just an option on the buffet line. Like when you go through the cafeteria, you know, like, you know, you pick a little bit of this, you pick a little bit of this, maybe you pick up a little Jesus for your spiritual life and well-being. He's not, he's not just an option. Jesus is the only way. He's the son of God. He's the king. He has ultimate authority. He's the only option. We see his supremacy in this passage. But here's, here's kind of a unique tension. We also see his suffering in this passage. And the, the first type of suffering we see is that he suffers like us. We see that he suffers like us. Look at verse 9. He goes to John the Baptist and he gets baptized. Now that, that might strike you as odd because you know earlier you're seeing people get baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. So why would Jesus get baptized? Well, it's missing that second component, right? Verse 4, people are receiving baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 5, baptize, they're being baptized by John, confessing their sins. And then it just says, verse 9, Jesus was just baptized. And the reason why that second part is missing, because he didn't have sin, so then why did he get baptized? He did it to identify with his people. To, to identify as a representative and as, a, as someone who stands shoulder to shoulder. And you see that later on in the passage uh, in verse 12. He gets driven out into the wilderness and he experiences, you know, some of the most scary things, isolation, hunger, darkness, because he's suffering like us. And, and, and another thing that kind of maybe might not sit so well with you, look at the end of verse 13. It says that the angels were ministering to him. If Jesus is the supreme king, why does he need to be ministered to? It's because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And so he, he suffers like us and he enters into our experience and he, and he has gone through what we go through and he understands pain and he understands agony and what it's like to, to call out in desperation. It's because he suffers like us. And the beautiful thing about that is this is what it means. It means God understands. God knows he knows what it's like to suffer. It's, it's empathy. You know the difference between sympathy and empathy? There's like a Wikipedia type understanding. And then there's the type of understanding where you've been through it. Like when I was a kid growing up, there was a fire in our house. 
spoiler alert, it was my fault. <laughs> I, I basically burned our house down. Uh, story for another time. But the, 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 the pain and the trauma of that, of standing with my family, weeping as we watched our house burn. A few years back, a couple friends of mine, actually two different friends at two different times, went through a very similar <laughs> tragedy and traumatic experience. And I remember talking to them and then reliving that moment as a kid, watching my house burn. And I knew what they were experiencing. That's the type of empathy that God has for us. It's not just you know, Googling an experience and trying to understand. He's gone through it and he knows. And so our God understands what we've gone through because he's suffered like us. But it goes a step further because Jesus just doesn't suffer like us. He suffers for us. And we see that there's a little bit of an awkward moment in this passage. So remember the announcement in verse 11? It's like wonderful phrase of acceptance. Verse 11, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Look what happens afterwards. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Do you know what happens with baptism these days? Like my sister-in-law got baptized this, this uh, summer. Come up out of the water. And the family got together afterwards. We went out to lunch and celebrated and partied. There's no after baptism luncheon for Jesus. It's like if we were to, you know, my sister-in-law gets baptized. We're like, yeah, okay, now get out of here, all right? That's, that's kind of like the awkwardness of this, this moment. Why would Jesus have this acceptance and then, boom, be sent out into the wilderness? Well, it's because with all of this buildup, with all of this supremacy and this authority and him being chosen, the Messiah, we get a glimpse of the reason he came in verse 12. He came to be sent out into isolation, into suffering, in our place. That's why he came. He came in order to suffer. Because in verses 4 and 5, when, when the people are experiencing forgiveness and they're confessing their sins, the reality is sin, in order for that to be forgiven, someone needs to pay that debt. And that's a debt that we can't afford to pay. That's why Jesus came. He came in order to suffer for us as our substitute. And this is something that I really need to drive home because this semester you are going to be confronted with a lot of needs, right? You're going to need to study. You're probably going to need to sleep a little bit. You're going to need to develop a caffeine addiction. <laughs> You're going to need to maybe make ends meet. You're going to need to make new friends. Maybe you feel like you need to please your parents and your professors. But of all the things you require, you need forgiveness. That's your greatest need. And that's why Jesus came to suffer for you and me so that we could be forgiven. And so we see this, this kind of dueling dynamic that Jesus the King also suffered. And I think um, the wisdom of Mufasa really puts it well. Anyone see the new Lion King? Yep. Anyone see the old Lion King? Yes. All right. There you go. Old one's better. Mufasa says this to Simba. He's talking about kingship. He's talking about his eventual rule. And he says, while others search for what they can take, 
A true king searches for what he can give. While others look for what they can take, a true king searches for what he can give. That's not original to Disney. That's Jesus Christ. The true king came not simply to rule, but to suffer. Because he's the one we need. And so as we see this dynamic, this is kind of, I just want to take a step back and, and, and show that this is the dynamic of Mark. And actually we see it in our graphic here. Where's Rachel? Where are you? I'm embarrassing you. She designed this. I just want to point this out because of all the things that we think Jesus is, this is the dynamic that we need to remember, that he is both king and sufferer. We need a king, but we need a substitute, and that's who Jesus is. And Mark, getting back into it, he summarizes it with one word, this idea of a suffering king. Look at verse 1. He uses the word gospel. That means good news. Jesus, as a suffering king, is good news. His arrival is the best thing that could ever happen to us. And so let me tell you that investing time this semester, getting to know Jesus, is the best use of your time. It's the best way that you can spend time this semester. Now, yeah, you need to be good students, be good community members, but spend time getting to know Jesus. Because if he is who he says he is, it changes everything. You know, for me growing up, I heard, you know, my, my dad was a pastor, and so I grew up hearing this all the time. Yeah, 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 he's good news. And, and I would have told you that I believed it, but especially once I got into high school, you know, I, I had my own assumptions and feelings about Jesus. Really, I felt like, okay, he can pay for my sins, but I feel like he's just a buzzkill. Like, I feel like he saves us, and then he just wants us to live really boring, you know, ritualistic lives. And so I, I started running away from him. I wanted to pursue, you know, parties, girls, popularity, all that. And it wasn't until I got to college that, that people who loved me deeply, didn't even know me yet, wanted to give me the opportunity to see Jesus for who he is and to re-examine my views of him. And I'm so thankful. I mean, that is the, the best thing that happened to me in my college career, my entire life, seeing Jesus for who he is because his arrival is gospel. It's good news. That's true for you as well. So don't waste your time. Invest getting to know Jesus. And if you already look to Jesus as your king and your substitute, then you know that knowing him better is a good way to spend your time this semester. And so I want to implore you to keep doing that. But if you're not a Christian and and you're kind of on the fence and maybe some of this is is weird or maybe even potentially offensive, you're, you're, you're skeptical, you're questioning, then I just want to offer an invitation that, that we are here to help you explore the claims of Jesus and, and see the good news and, and, and give you the opportunity to wrestle with that as well, even if it's your first time. Jesus is good news. So to, to close our time out, I want to look at how we can specifically take some next steps with Jesus answer his call. So real briefly, at the end of the passage, do you notice that Jesus gives three different commands? So there's two in verse 15. He says, repent. He says, believe. And then in verse 17, he says, follow me. So repent, believe, and follow. I just want to briefly talk about each one of those commands. First, repent. I don't know if that makes you shudder a little bit. 
hearing that word. I don't know what you think of, maybe like apocalyptic, end times yelling from the corner of a street. But the word, uh, simply put, means to turn, to change mind or change direction. It's this idea of, of turning from pursuing one thing and pursuing something else. And the idea of repentance in the scriptures means turning from our sin and turning to our Savior. But then, even then, the way that we think about sin tends to be these big no-nos, you know, like the, the red flag things on the list, like sex and murder and cursing and rooting for the Steelers. <laughs> I'm not a Steelers fan, don't worry. But sin is more than that. It's deeper and it's broader. Remember the aching we talked about in point number one? Sin is anything that you turn to to fill that aching and that longing other than God. That's what sin is. It can be grades, it can be relationships, it can be Netflix, it can be food. Sin is trying to fill that aching with anything other than Jesus. And Jesus simply says, repent. Turn from that. Take ownership over those, the, the, those things that you're, you're looking to for life. Put them aside and turn to Jesus. It's like the idea of, I think this is mainly a guy problem, but when you're driving and you get lost, this happens, this actually ends up you know, causing some marital conflict for my wife and I, because I'll do this thing where we are leaving somewhere and I don't know where we're going and I forget to type it into the GPS and so I just start driving. And then like, I realized 10 minutes in, oh shoot, I'm lost. And so I put her on the spot, I'm like, type in the address, like I need to know where I'm going. And she's like, why don't you just slow down and do that before we get going. Because well, I'm a guy and I'm arrogant. <laughs> but it's, it's that moment of realizing that you're lost, taking ownership over that fact and turning to turn in the right direction. That's the idea of repentance. Jesus saying, take ownership and turn. The, the second step of that, it's like a one-two step, a one-two punch, is to repent, but then believe. Look at verse 15. He says, repent. And believe in the gospel. Think about what he doesn't say there. He doesn't say, repent and get your life together. Get your act together. He says, repent and believe in the good news. It is that simple as putting your trust in what Jesus has done. In who he is and staking your hope in that. It's it's accepting and proclaiming that Jesus is the king you need and the savior that you need and banking your life on that fact. Uh, just to, to give you a glimpse of what that good news is, look at verse 11 again. The result of the gospel is that verse 11 then extends to the people who put their trust in Jesus. Verse 11 reads for you if you're in Christ. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you I'm well pleased. That's the result of the gospel. That acceptance that you long for, it happens through Christ. That's the announcement that can be over your life. It reminds me of when I uh, started dating Jillian, my now wife. I had to take the really scary step of asking her parents for their approval. Call me super old fashioned. And so I, I sit down with her parents and I, you know, with sweaty hands and shaking arms, I ask the Don, as I call him, her dad, if I could date Jillian. 
And he says, okay, well, I have a test for you. I was like, oh boy. He says, would you ever lie to me to gain my approval? I said, nope, never. And he knows that my family's from the Chicago area. So he says, are you a Phillies fan or a Cubs fan? I said, Phillies. So, okay, we're going to start over. Would you ever lie to me <laughs> to gain my approval? And I said, yes. <laughs> so we, we were joking around a little bit. But then, you know, after the laughing died down, he looks at me and he says, Clint, I don't need to approve of you. Because I trust my daughter, Jillian. And if she approves of you, then you have my approval. I had a substitute. And so, in a sense, verse 11 was over me in the eyes of the dying. He didn't need to approve of me because he was looking at me through the lens of my substitute, my now wife. That's the hope of the gospel. Our approval comes through Jesus, who is our substitute. And so if you, if you want, take verse 11, underline it, open up your Bible if you have it right now, or, or uh, you know, when you get back to your room, take note of Mark 1.11, because if you're in Christ, that is the announcement over you. You're beloved and you're accepted. That's what belief results in. And I want to end by, by looking at the last command that Jesus gives us in verse 17. Look at what he, the invitation he extends to these fishermen. You know, they're just doing their business, fishing. And in verse 17, Jesus comes up to them and he says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So think about this. He doesn't invite them into this curriculum. He doesn't invite them into these sets of rules and rituals. Now, obedience is part of the Christian walk, but what he primarily invites them into is a relationship. That's the invitation that Jesus gives to his followers. He says, come and follow me. Be with me. Take this journey with me. It's about a relationship. This is so radical to have someone so amazing in authority want to spend time with you. Like your professors are probably very kind, but they're not looking to have like 20 new friends. Like if you fail your class, and you do really poorly, or you know, once you get to the end of the semester, it's kind of like, well, that's it. I mean, maybe you'll strike up a little bit more of a relationship, but they're there to teach. They're there to be your academic authority. They're not looking to spend a lifelong friendship with you. But Jesus, the King of Kings, the God of the universe says, hey, come with me. That's what God invites us into. It's a relationship. And so those are the the invitations that I want to extend to you because that's what Mark points us to. Those three things, to repent, to believe, and to follow. This is what Jesus is calling you to. To turn from those things you're aching for and trying to fill that aching with, to turn to him. To believe that Jesus is your king and your substitute and to know that if you do, you're approved and accepted. And to start this journey of a lifelong relationship with the one who made you. And let me say, there is urgency in that invitation. The word immediately is repeated all throughout this passage and all throughout this book. Jesus says, the time is now. So don't hesitate. It's an urgent call to repent, believe, and follow Jesus. But at the same time, it also is a journey and a process. And so I'm not going to twist your arm or coerce you into doing that. But know that this is the opportunity to respond to that urgency and to get to know Jesus this semester. That's what we want to provide for you. Repent, believe, and follow. Let me pray. God, thank you for 
arriving and for understanding and for being our substitute. We trust and believe that the arrival of your son is good news for us. And um, I also want to acknowledge the ways that we make assumptions and and judgments and and even use uh, certain aspects of who you are to benefit ourselves while ignoring others. I pray that this semester will be an opportunity to see you uh, entirely, see you clearly, that um, for those of us who have repented and believed the gospel, that you would deepen our appreciation and our desire uh, to follow you and to share you with others. And I also pray for those who are in this room where this is maybe a first-time experience or maybe on the fence and just came because they felt obligated. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them tonight, this week, this semester, and that there would be an urgency to our call to repent and to believe and to follow. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.